How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I think, though, this is, there's something special about this president. It's not, not his politics and not the nature of his case, and that is the fact that he lies. He lies every day, and I think that's got to be very troublesome to the, any of those who would be uh, his attorney. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court, the courts, the law, and more and more recently about lawyers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts and the law for Slate, and this week's show is going to take us into the complicated world of crisis pregnancy centers in California, and then to the even stranger world of Donald Trump's attorneys. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. This week, the court heard a second big monster political gerrymanders case, this one out of Maryland. And I think it's fair to say that it is now plain that while the justices are confounded by this problem, they are even more confounded by the solution. In other Supreme Court news, Justice John Paul Stevens, who will turn 98 in April. Happy birthday, Justice Stevens. Panned a piece for The New York Times this week advocating for the repeal of the Second Amendment. The legal internet went predictably bananas with a lot of pushback actually from constitutional scholars on the left as well as the right. Uh, But you go with your fine self, John Paul Stevens. Later on in the show, we are going to tackle the always vexing problem of Donald Trump's inability to hire or retain for any amount of time an attorney. But we wanted to start by bringing you right into oral arguments in a case that actually was heard since the last show, and that involves California law and reproductive rights and, you guessed it, free speech again. Joining us to talk about this case called National Institute of Family Life Advocates, or NIFLA, versus Becerra, we have a reproductive freedom expert, and that is Priscilla Smith. She's a clinical lecturer in law and associate research scholar at Yale Law School. There she directs the program for the study of reproductive justice. But before she joined the academy, she was an attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights for 13 years, and she argued myriad cases in federal and state courts. And in the U.S. Supreme Court, she's twice argued, once in Ferguson versus City of Charleston in 2000 and in Gonzalez versus Carhartt in 2007. So, Scylla Smith, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. And this is um, a case that is, for all intents and purposes, it's an abortion case, but it's dressed up as a free speech case, right? That's right. So, so explain to us how this comes to be. I mean, it is without doubt the reproductive rights case of this term, but it's purely a speech case by the time it gets to the Supreme Court. It's purely a speech case through and through, and it involves a sort of ongoing problem, vexing problem in the reproductive rights world, which is how to ensure that these so-called crisis pregnancy centers Uh, tell the truth to women who come to them for services, to get medical services, and to ensure that women are properly informed about what they're getting when they get there. 
So the issue here is a California statute. It's called the Reproductive Fact Act. It was passed in 2015, and it was attempting to solve for the problem you just flicked at, that we have these licensed clinics uh, that are not necessarily giving full information to people who are coming seeking uh, abortions and other services. The Fact Act basically says they have to disclose that California offers free or low-cost contraception, prenatal care, and abortion, um, and then unlike licensed clinics that focus on pregnancy and family planning actually have to disclose they have no licensed medical provider on the premises. So this is the law. Um, What they're asking these folks to disclose is true, and yet the law gets challenged. Can you go back and explain to us why the law had to be enacted in the first place? Because it does sound an awful lot like it's targeting these specific kinds of clinics. Well, here you have an industry with a business model that is based on fraud and deception. And we know this because of other cases involving similar statutes um, where the directors of these clinics have said, we are trying to get women in here uh, thinking they're coming to an abortion clinic. And the reason we need to do that is because those are the women we're targeting. We want to change their minds. So we use what they call vague advertising, what uh, most of us would see as deceptive, if not purely fraudulent advertising, in order to get women to come into the clinics. And when they come in, then they continue to delay them, sometimes mislead them in the most egregious cases continue to make false appointments for abortions uh, for these women and put them off in obtaining their abortions, sometimes until they're so far along in pregnancy that they can no longer get an abortion. So we had a case down in Louisiana. We actually shut the guy down because this is exactly what he was doing. He was making appointments, claiming he was making doctor's appointments for folks and uh, continually... uh, canceling them, rescheduling them, and finally the women um, would be so far along they couldn't get their abortion. Um, so here we're trying – what these laws are trying to do is prevent the harm from happening in the first place. So to just provide uh, – require the clinics to provide these very simple, factual, uh, truthful disclosures about what they do and what they don't do. And the fact that they're doing medical services – providing a, a, a disclosure that says we are not licensed medical providers. So I think it's very simple, straightforward information. I would think it would be kind of a no-brainer in any other industry. Before we talk about the the, the nitty-gritty of, of the cases it was argued at the court, uh, Scylla, I was really captured by um, you participated in a SCOTUS blog forum, and you talked, I think, so compellingly in your piece about trying to find some middle ground here. In other words, let's not turn this into us versus them, believers versus non-believers. Let's try to find some basic principles that doesn't, you know, weaponize the law to harm the other side. Can can you just walk us through what you were trying to the middle ground you were trying to find in this litigation? <laughs> it's so hard, Dahlia, but yes. I think that all of us would agree that people who want to counsel pregnant women um, about carrying their pregnancies to term, helping pregnant women who want to carry their pregnancies to term to do that, um, 
are fully supportive of that. And even counseling pregnant women and saying, I don't think you should have an abortion because I think abortion is murder. I think people should be able to say all those things and carry on um, in doing that. And, you know, providing, if you provide support to pregnant women who want to carry their pregnancies to term, all power to you. Um, that's something that it's a goal of mine. I would like to see more support for pregnant women who want to carry their pregnancies to term um, in general. But that's not what these places do. What they do is lie to people about um, what services are available and what the risks of abortion are. And so, you know, there may be some good actors out there doing the right thing. Let's support them. But let's make sure that everybody just has very basic information about what this providers actually do and don't do. Now, the reason this case becomes kind of interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the centers are claiming, the plaintiffs are claiming that California is specifically targeting them for what they're calling disfavored treatment. They're forcing them to send people to get free abortions. They're making them complicit in destroying lives and hurting women. And they feel like because they're singled out, uh, this is a really egregious, uh, compelled speech, and it is incredibly uh, targeted at them. What, what's your answer to that? Well, yeah, two things. The targeting claim sort of puzzles me because this actually applies to anybody, either licensed or unlicensed in the different categories, who is providing pregnancy-related services, regardless of whether they provide abortions or don't provide abortions. Um, it's not viewpoint-based or ideological. Their argument about targeting is based on certain uh, clinics having uh, being exempt from the requirement. So for the license notice in particular, um, this is the one where licensed clinics have to just disclose that there is um, a free medical care program in California, California's version of Medicaid, that provides medical services, including reproductive health services to low-income women, including a full range of those services, prenatal care, abortion, contraception, um, that they just have to disclose that that's available. So they exempt from that disclosure the clinics that are already Medi-Cal providers, which just makes sense because they're already giving that information. Now, would it? I guess it would have been cleaner if they had just required the Medi-Cal people to put the same notice up as well, but it. Just, it seems to me that it's a completely logical exemption. So it's just about saying, if you already tell people this, you don't have to tell them again. Fair enough. Um, let's listen for a minute, if we may, to Sonia Sotomayor. Boy, she had quite a day at this argument. Um, she was doing her own research, fact checking. She was just all over the all over the Google. Um, so let's listen to her for a minute. She here she is telling Michael Ferris, he's the lawyer who represents the clinics, uh, that she actually visited the Fallbrook Pregnancy Resource Center website, and this is what she learned about them. Let's have a listen. I looked at one, a few of them, and. Exemplary of is, is the Fallbrook Pregnancy Resource Center website, and it's I'm fairly sophisticated. There's a woman on the homepage with 
a uniform that looks like a nurse's uniform in front of an ultrasound machine. Um, it shows uh, an exam room. The text of the page titled abortion says Fallbrook will educate clients about different abortion methods available and describe in medical terms different abortion procedures. The website also says clients will be evaluated by nurses and that they follow all HIPAA regulations, which if they're not a medical provider, they don't have to follow HIPAA. If a reasonable person could look at this website and think that you're giving medical advice, would the unlicensed notice be wrong? So so this is, and I should note, I guess, that I think Justice Kennedy got grumpy with her, right, because she was doing her own research. But 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 what there's a weird way in which she was attempting to puncture, uh, you know, the story and say, look, this is what really happens. Um, and that's been I mean, I know you've got this long career in um, reproductive rights law, but it, it does seem as though that was sort of what we saw happen in whole women's health uh, when I hate to say it, but led by the women justices, we we again had this. No, this is what it's really like uh, when you have to drive halfway across the state of Texas and get a pill and then go home and then come back and get another. You know, like I think that there is a way in which what Sotomayor is trying to give voice to is real lived experience, particularly for women who, you know, use these services. Um, and there's a way in which it, it, it gets met with this claim at the court that that's unseemly. Uh, so I guess I wanted you to reflect both on your own time arguing at the court, but also what do we do with this strange world that we inhabit where it's it's deemed kind of improper to talk about these cases from the vantage point of, dude, I got on the website. It's misleading, uh, which is really, I think, all Sotomayor was trying to do. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really tough. Uh, there's a couple of, in terms of the legal aspect of this and how it impacts this case. The fact that it's on preliminary injunction, I think, is also something that Sotomayor is pointing out. Can you explain that? Scylla, explain what that means. Yeah. On preliminary injunction, there's not a full trial record. You don't have all the facts about what's really going on. And so Sotomayor is trying to put this into context and say, look, you have to let this case live so we can find out what's really going on in these places and whether their claims are true. You can't just let this law, strike down this law without any record of what's going on. Um, and that is, made me really crazy during the whole part of the argument also about the pro-life billboard. This was a hypothetical that I think um, Alito raised I, from the best I could tell when I was listening. Um, this idea that there would be this big billboard that proclaimed their pro-life views is just, as a factual matter, completely untrue. That's the whole point of these clinics, is that they won't proclaim their pro-life views. Um, and I think Sotomayor is kind of just trying to pull us back to reality here um, and also say, let them build their record. Uh, let's see what's really going on. If they have nurses at the clinics also, um, who are licensed medical providers, then they don't have to make the unlicensed disclosure that they were complaining about because they have licensed medical providers there. So this law might not even apply to them. They might not even have standing 
here. So, you know, I think there's a lot of questions about the facts of the particular case and how things need to be developed further. Um, And the judge just said, there's nothing here that shows me what you've said so far. Nothing shows me that I should put this law on hold while we're going through this case. Right. So it's early days. and It's early days. Let's let this play out um, and see if there's even a threat of prosecution against these people. If they want to put up a big pro-life billboard, um, you know, go to it and see if anybody is going to prosecute you for that. Is that an advertisement? Maybe if it has the name of the clinic, it becomes an advertisement. Um, maybe then we can argue about whether the 13 languages they have to say we're not a licensed medical provider and dwarfs the message. But I don't think we even have to talk about that yet before we know what kind of advertisements they have. Let's listen for a minute to Sam Alito, who um, I think you pointed out was really, really vociferously in the camp uh, of the of the clinics. Um, here he is challenging California's Solicitor General, Joshua Klein. Klein was defending the law. And, and here is Alito talking about that point we, we talked about at the opening, Scylla, the, the idea that this law really unfairly only targets this handful of clinics. Let's have a listen. If you have a law that's, that's neutral on its face, but then it has a lot of crazy exemptions and when you apply all the exemptions, what you're left with is uh, a very strange pattern. Uh, and, and, gee, the, it, it turns out that just about the only clinics that are covered by this are pro-life clinics. You think it's possible to infer uh, intentional discrimination in that situation? I think that the the, the heart and soul of, of the challenger's claim here really is what Alito said, which is, Wow, this is crazy. It just singles out pro-life clinics, and that has to be uh, unconstitutional. The response I would give is twofold. First, I don't think it's true that it only targets pro-life facilities. If it does, it's because none of them are Medi-Cal providers, which I actually find hard to believe. I imagine that there are medical providers out there doing prenatal care that are pro-life. And so... And I also think there are probably some pro-choice people who aren't Medi-Cal providers. And if the basis on which that distinction is being made is the fact that somebody's a Medi-Cal provider and all the pro-choice people are, it's that's the distinction it's it's being made on. It's that they they don't need to tell people about the Medi-Cal program because they're in the Medi-Cal program. It's not targeting them because of their pro-life views. Um, the second piece is that I'm not sure it's true that you can't target people um, who are who are pro-life when what they're doing is being in an industry that is deceptive. So if you're targeting an industry that has a reputation and an earned reputation for uh, deceiving consumers, you can target that industry for regulation. That's true in other Supreme Court cases where there have been um, accounting industries or lawyers who've been uh, pursuing clients and they've been targeted for certain types of regulation. So I, I just don't, I don't think that's true as a, as a legal matter that you can't ever target industries that are prone to abuse um, for certain types of regulation. Now, the fact that they're all pro-life isn't the reason they're being targeted. 
they're being targeted because they are deceptive. And California has a has a compelling interest in pregnant women who go to those clinics in informing them about all their options. It's not, and also it's not informing them, here's where you go to get an abortion. It's informing them that there's a whole range of reproductive health services, including prenatal care, that they can get for free at other providers. So if they go to this provider and they say, you know, that person was extremely judgmental, or I didn't like the way their hair color, or whatever they decide, I don't like their bedside manner. And they say, I don't like that provider. I want to go to a different one. They now know that there are free medical services available through California that they might be eligible for. Full stop. That's all it does. They can go to prenatal care as well. So I think California has a compelling interest in making sure that pregnant women who are going to carry to term... um, have good prenatal care. So that should be enough to justify it on its own. So so this brings us inexorably to informed consent laws. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And here's the other thing we didn't talk about. Casey, Casey, Casey. Uh, And let me just note that when we say Casey, we're talking about Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That is the 1992 landmark Supreme Court case uh, in which the court given the option to strike down Roe v. Wade, actually uh, uh, upheld the constitutional right uh, as laid out in Roe v. Wade with some uh, refinement, including uh, questions about informed consent. Right. So this came up in the argument as well. Justice Breyer was talking about the goose and the gander. In law, as you well know, what is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And so I think what's bothering from these questions, people, as it bothers me. We, there, there are pro-choice states and there are pro-life states. All right, so if a pro-life state can tell a doctor, you have to tell people about adoption, why can't a pro-choice state tell a doctor, a, a facility of whatever it is, you have to tell people about abortion? He's saying that if you're going to compel... Uh, abortion providers to say all these things about adoption or carrying to term, et cetera, then you must be able to require these um, licensed clinics to do the same thing. And really, he goes further because he says if you can require them to talk about and describe adoption, you can require them to talk about and sort of describe abortion. That's more than the California disclosure requires even. All they say is you you can be required to tell them that there are free services available that cover abortion. You can require them to say the word abortion in that list. Um, and that's certainly what Casey says. Casey says doctors can be required to disclose that there's medical assistance benefits available for prenatal care, childbirth, and neonatal care. And that's exactly the, that's word for word what was upheld in Planned Parenthood. And that's pretty much word for word what's, what California is requiring here. So he's saying if you can require abortion providers to do it, then we can require these people to do it too. Now, <clears throat> it, you know, if they want to strike it down, in this case, then I don't know how they get around striking it down in Casey, right? It seemed to me that the <laughs> that the Council for the Crisis Pregnancy Center was trying to make some distinction about informed consent, that you're providing informed consent when you do a medical procedure, abortion. 
But of course, these licensed clinics are providing, uh, should be providing informed consent for the medical procedures that they're performing as well. What the real distinction is, and what the guy is really trying to say but won't admit it, is that what's different is that the abortion providers are providing abortions, <laughs> and these people are providing not abortions. And so he's he's the one who's really trying to make that distinction and, you know, link it in with the informed consent that was allowed in Casey that way. But there's no, from a First Amendment standpoint, there really should be no distinction. There's just as much of a compelling interest in the health of pregnant women carrying to term as there is in the health of pregnant women uh, having abortions. And and it's practically a law on this show that I have to ask you what Justice Kennedy's going to do. So I, I'm just going to ask you because it, it's kind of the law. And and I don't know if you have some sense. I know that, you know, you argued uh, the partial birth abortion uh, ban case at the court. Do you have some sense of where, where Justice Kennedy goes with this? <laughs> I wish I did. What I, you know, I can't imagine that Justice Kennedy is going to want to strike down the informed consent requirements that were approved in Casey. That's his baby. That's what he's stood for um, all these years. So then it seems to me he has to grapple with how he's being fair and how he's being even-handed, because I think he's a man who likes to think of himself as being fair and even-handed. So, um, I, you know, I don't know how he's going to do it. I hope he does the right thing and says, well, then I can uphold them here, because I can't imagine he's going to strike down the case he wants. It's it's so interesting. There's such a through line, you know, having having talked about Masterpiece Cake Shop earlier in a different show and the ways in which that pits the Justice Kennedy of Obergefell against the Justice Kennedy who has special particular solicitude in Hobby Lobby for religious objectors in a weird sense. This is the same problem, right? This is the Justice Kennedy who cobbles together this majority in Casey, but now he's got these religious dissenters. Now, they're not bringing a religious dissent case, but it, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop, they're bringing a speech case. Yeah, they tried to make it a religious dissent case, even though the Supreme Court did not take their religious claim, right, their free exercise claim. Um, they talk about complicity, that they would be complicit in abortion by telling women that there are free medical services that cover all reproductive health care, including prenatal care and abortion, that that would make them somehow complicit if the woman went and had an abortion, which takes the notion of complicity far beyond the Catholic notion of complicity and takes it into some a whole other level where you would be complicit you know, by saying good morning to somebody who was on their way to get an abortion, you know, pleasing her in any way. I don't, you know, I don't know what the limits of that complicity argument are. So it's, it'll be very interesting to see what he does and how he parses this out. Um, I actually, you know, I didn't listen to the argument right when it was happening. I heard it afterwards and people were so negative about how it turned out. Um, and maybe I was prepared for that, but because, maybe because I thought, oh, this is going to be a disaster. I actually wasn't as um, as unhopeful as other people uh, were about this, that I can see the court saying something about 
the unlicensed disclosure and the 13 languages being too much, but generally upholding the notion that the unlicensed people that are doing medical care without medical licenses need to disclose that fact. Um, and also perhaps uh, upholding this this license notice saying, look, the Casey people have to tell women about free medical care. The These people have to tell uh, women about free medical care too. I, you know, I maybe I'm crazy and and overly optimistic about Justice Kennedy, which is usually how I am about him. Um, certainly, going into the Gonzalez argument, that was true. Uh, but I do have a soft place in my heart for him, and um, maybe it's because I think he does try to find these middle grounds that I would love us to be able to find. If there were if there were these clinics that were out there that w- would put up a billboard that said, we're a pro-life clinic, come talk to us about carrying your pregnancy to term, I would be fully supportive of that. But when they deceive women and try to trick women who are heading into an abortion clinic to come into their clinic instead and lie to them, that's where I draw the line. Well, this sober middle ground was brought to you by uh, Priscilla Smith. She teaches at Yale Law School, where she directs a program for the study of reproductive justice. She was an attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights for many years, and she famously argued uh, two cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, including Gonzalez versus Carhartt that we talked about today. Scylla, thank you so very much. Uh, Sober middle ground is just my favorite place to live these days. So thank you uh, for ending on that note. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dahlia. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. 
The right to vote is the building block of American democracy, and this year, Slate's journalists will be offering expanded coverage of gerrymandering and vote suppression, vote purges, investigating key legislative battles and court cases on the state and federal level. They'll also offer new tools to help our readers understand how electoral sausage gets made. So we're asking our readers and our listeners to help fund this coverage. It's so important. Find out how you can support this work today at Slate.com slash voting rights. For the next part of the show, we wanted to turn back to something that we teed up a little bit uh, in the last show when we talked to Bob Bauer about the president and his legal team. Uh, One of the really weird stories that's been circulating since that show uh, is that Donald Trump cannot seem to hire a lawyer. So here he is. He's fending off the Bob Mueller probe. He's got three female accusers. As of this week, there's this monster emoluments challenge. And D.C. firms are just refusing, seemingly, to sign on to help him. So joining us to discuss all this is a dear friend of this podcast. I think he was on the very first podcast with us, and that is Walter Dellinger. He is head of the appellate practice at O'Malvaney & Myers in Washington, D.C., but he also served as assistant attorney general and head of the Office of Legal Counsel from 1993 to 1996, and then as acting solicitor general for the 1996 and 97 term at the U.S. Supreme Court. Walter, we wanted you on the show more than anything, not just because you were a government lawyer, but because you're a D.C. insider lawyer who's argued so many cases at the court and might give us some sense of what is going on. So, Walter, welcome back to Amicus. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, Now, last week we heard this crazy thing. John Dowd, who was one of the president's personal attorneys, was resigning. He was resigning, I guess, because he wouldn't, the president wouldn't listen to him. And then we started hearing about all these monster lawyers in D.C., including Ted Olson, saying, no, I'm not going to represent him either. How weird is this, Walter? No, it is quite strange that the president seems to have trouble finding uh, an attorney. There could be many different reasons. Uh, but it is highly unusual. You would think that any lawyer would jump at the opportunity to uh, to be the president's uh, lawyer in such a high-profile matter. It would not be because they don't agree with his politics. Um, lots of lawyers have represented uh, uh, presidents or other high officials they don't agree with. Um, it can't be because they think there's not a case to be made because that's very much an open question. Um, uh, at this point. Um, so what is it? Um, sometimes there might genuinely be conflicts. There are lots of other people that seem to have gotten competent lawyers first. And so the, uh, there are, there are attorneys that are already assigned to those defendants. I think of this, there's something special about this president that's not, not his politics and not the nature of his case. And that is the fact that he lies. He lies every day. And I think that's got to be very troublesome to the, any of those who would who would be uh, his attorney. And he seems not to realize that the way he fires people is going to make it hard to hire people. Right. All the lawyers that might have gone to work for President Trump watches what happens to people like Rex Tillerson, for example, the secretary of state and the way in which they're discharged. That's not a very good approach if you have any sense about having to hire good people. And uh, we're talking about a level of lawyers who just don't um, need the aggravation 
of a president whom they're not going to be able to trust and whom if he discharges them is going to do it in a in a way that borders on humiliating. One of the issues that's hard, Walter, you've identified this problem of of this president and the truth. There is this other issue of this president and sex. Uh, But let's be really clear. Uh, We've had presidents get in trouble over sex before. You represented uh, Bill Clinton, the office of the presidency, in litigation involving Paula Jones and claims of sexual harassment. So it is not fair to say uh, that uh, what's yucky about this is that unseemly behavior was involved. There's lots of unseemly behavior. Something different is going on now. Uh, what is it? Yes, I think it, it, it. the question is whether you can trust the client. And if you look at the way he's dealt with other people and the way I think it is indisputed that he makes false statements time and again and again and again, uh, no one is think he's going to he's going to change his stripes uh, all of a sudden. And, and I think that's why that's the most dispositive reason why people wouldn't want to get uh, involved with the president. He's also someone who has attacked a, a sitting federal judge uh, in his case. And I think that would weigh upon that would certainly weigh upon. Uh, lawyers you might consider. You know, I hope that it's a good, I don't think it's a good thing for the country if the president is having trouble finding um, an attorney. Uh, uh, I think he will find an attorney. People think he's run through the high-profile attorneys. And in most every state in the country, there's a very good criminal trial lawyer. So I think there are plenty of people out there. And I and I, I would hope that a good lawyer will take on this assignment because our system works better when someone is well represented, particularly when the other side, if there were ever any litigation against the uh, special counsel's office, uh, have, have very good lawyers, um, extraordinarily good lawyers. And I think it's particularly important in this case because there are important institutional considerations about the presidency that will affect future presidents, Democrat and and Republican. So that I think we want this president to have lawyers who are competent to make arguments about respect for the institutional necessities of the Article II presidency of the United States um, and, and hope that courts make whatever precedents might be made in this case in a thoughtful way, considering both sides. So I personally hope he gets good lawyers. Walter, I've been known to make the fatuous observation that part of the problem with Donald Trump, and I think Bob Bauer made this point when we talked to him, is that he thinks of lawyers as fixers, right? They're just the guys who make the case go away. And they're very good at bankruptcy and they're very good at divorce and they're very good at New York real estate. But that's just not the playing field that we are operating on when we're starting to talk about, you know, Article Two powers of the president. Um, now, that's not an entirely fair claim because, you know, John Dowd, Ty Cobb, uh, these are these are real serious people. They're not fixers. Uh, but it does seem to me as though uh, the John Dowds of the world, well, he left. Uh, are they being replaced by people who just follow orders and think that if you just pay enough money to somebody, the case goes away? Is that the other problem happening here, that serious people are are uh, falling away and unserious people are stepping in? 
Well, you know, I think we don't know. We also don't know um, any lawyer of the first rank would want to know that he or she was going to be completely in charge uh, of the representation of the president. Um, and we don't know what kind of commitment the president and the various lawyers that are that are around him, you know, a New York real estate lawyer um, and and others. We don't know what roles they would play. And that that could well influence someone who thought about being the president's attorney. I want to ask you for a minute about just because I think listeners don't always appreciate the bubble of the D.C. law culture. And I think that you get this idea from watching Law and Order or, you know, I don't know, L.A. Law or Lionel Hutz on The Simpsons. You get this idea how lawyers work. But in fact, certainly on the Supreme Court bar, uh, which you've been an esteemed member of, but even I think within the, the world of government lawyers and lobbyists, there are just informal rules of decorum and propriety. And I think you mentioned truth telling. Um, You know, we've had Paul Clement on this show. We've had Paul Smith on this show. There aren't teams uh, the way you might ordinarily think that lawyers sort into teams. Is is that also, is there just a cultural world of how D.C. attorneys operate that is being violated by this president that's separate entirely from, again, who he is or what the cases are? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that, that members of the of the uh, certainly the culture of the Supreme Court bar, you know, would be walking away within a day or two if the president continued to make attacks upon the special counsel, for example. The the the, the people that you're talking about within that within that kind of practice in in Washington and in the Supreme Court. Uh, would not be there the second day that the president made a fraudulent attack on the special counsel's office. Uh, and so that's, that's part of the problem. Now, in terms of a good criminal defense lawyer, Dolly, it's just not the case that that group that, who, that are, whose names are well known, um, are, are the only options. I could, I could find three good criminal defense lawyers in North Carolina who would, who would offer the, you know, the finest representation. But they, too, would be lawyers of a culture um, who would not be uh, amenable to staying in a representation with a client who was attacking the judges and uh, distinguished opposing counsel. And, and that that leads us to I think there's been a little bit of uh, condescension in uh, news accounts this week that one of. Uh, the lawyers who's joined uh, the Trump team is, uh, you know, just a, a guy from Georgia. He's a medievalist. You know, what the heck? Uh, you know, he he seems to do only uh, very, very local Georgia stuff. What you're saying, I think, is really important. That doesn't make him a bad criminal lawyer. And just because and I think he made this point uh, in an interview this week where he said, you know, just because I'm not an inside the beltway lawyer doesn't make me uh, suspect. I, I am very, very good at my job. So I think you're right to observe that uh, a lot of this can be handled by uh, a competent lawyer. I guess we have yet to find out whether Andrew Andrew Economou, I hope I'm saying his name right, uh, is that guy. But slandering him because uh, he comes from Georgia, 
uh, isn't going to get us anywhere, right? Right. Being the, I've been from North Carolina and also teach early American constitutional history. Uh, made me sensitive to that, those criticisms. I do not know that uh, that gentleman. Um, so where are we headed with all this, Dolly? Are we headed? Do you think we're headed to some sort of constitutional crisis? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I asked uh, Senator Cory Booker in a Q&A this week whether we're headed to a constitutional crisis because, uh, you know, I, I, the way normal people go to cocktail parties and say, like, I like your handbag. I go to cocktail parties and you go to cocktail parties and say, define constitutional crisis. Uh, and that's those are the kinds of parties we go to. And that's why nobody else comes. But so 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 I guess my question for you is you define constitutional crisis for me. And then I will tell you if we are in one or about to be in one. How about that? Well, I would say that uh, as distinct from political crises or even crises of democratic legitimacy, uh, which I think we also may be headed towards. A constitutional crisis is one where there's no there's no agreed upon mechanism for resolving a serious dispute. As long as you have an agreed upon mechanism for resolution, you're not in a constitutional crisis. The Constitution is working. Uh, Bush versus Gore was a near miss, but everybody agreed that they would abide by the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, five to four, though it was, and we did not have a dispute because of Al Gore's, because of Al Gore's really heroic decision not to continue to fight, not to go back to the Florida Supreme Court and ask them to finish the, to reject the Supreme Court's assumptions and continue the, the vote count. We might have wound up with two people claiming the presidency and no means of resolving it. We didn't have that. You know, our one genuine constitutional crisis, the Civil War, was one where the people didn't agree upon the scope of a, of, of a Supreme Court's authority. Lincoln said he would not seek to free Dred Scott, but he would not use the Dred Scott decision as a rule of government. And he would resist in every way he could the notion that Congress could not prohibit slavery in the territory and stop its further spread. And without a Supreme Court to resolve the decision about how how binding Supreme Court decisions were, that dispute was open and led to the next and our most serious constitutional crisis on the issue of whether states that had joined the Union could withdraw from the Union. The Constitution was silent. And there was serious argument over the question and no means of disputing it. No one thought at the time you could go to the Supreme Court and have U.S. versus South Carolina decide whether South Carolina had lawfully withdrawn and therefore who was in control of Fort Sumter, you know, so we had to resolve that. We had to have that resolved by the constitutional scholars that died on Missionary Ridge, as Charles Black once put it. Uh, as long as we have a mechanism for resolution, we don't have a crisis. We nearly have already won this. That, that's probably the most germane is during the Nixon Watergate investigation. Nixon was prepared until the last moment to reject the Supreme Court decision, a Supreme Court decision ordering him to hand over the tapes. His position was going to be it's the president's decision what the scope of executive privilege is. The court said, no, it's the court's decision. And we think you have to hand them over. He was prepared to say it's the president's decision. And I'm not going to go. To, and I'm not going to. But the fact that the court's decision was unanimous made it politically impossible because the House was 
prepared to impeach him in the Senate to remove him. Um, the question is here, are we going to get into a situation where the, the, the president takes actions that stop all inquiries that some people believe are, are criminal inquiries? And here's what, my, here's what troubles me a lot, Dahlia. Everybody is fixed on on the uh, on the that, the that the big question is whether the president will will fire Mueller, and that you know we would be like okay if he didn't fire Mueller. He doesn't have to fire Mueller, and therefore he he wouldn't fire Mueller. He has to simply replace either the deputy attorney general or the attorney general, and he has the power to replace either one of them and put an acting person in who would be in charge of Mueller's investigation. But without it having the drama that everyone has built up around um, the role of Robert Mueller. It's so funny because I wrote, it feels like years ago, but I think it was last week, Walter, I wrote about how I like the term that uh, John Finn and Jack Balkin are using instead of constitutional crisis. They use the words constitutional rot. Uh, and they say this is not necessarily something that's going to detonate in our face one day. It's just the slow seepage through the floorboards. Uh, we're, we might not even notice when we're in a constitutional crisis. And for that very reason, I think that, you know, you want to watch what happens to Rod Rosenstein. You want to watch what happens to Jeff Sessions, because focusing all of our attentions, you know, we're going to we're going to take to the streets uh, the day Mueller is fired really, I think, ignores all the other ways this can happen. But also, I think it ignores all the ways it's already happening, you know, and I think it's just really these red lines are so pernicious, right? Because the red line may not happen, but if the floorboards fall out from under us, uh, it'll be over. And I think that's why I I always resist the term constitutional crisis. I think in part because uh, we, we have some notion that the Supreme Court itself will like hoist some flag saying today, today is, you know, it's not going to happen that way. But more pointedly, I think it absolves us of the responsibility for, for tracking what's going on. We'll just wait till the, the lawyers tell us we're in crisis. That worries me, too. I agree. And, you know, we, we're in a situation where uh, Rod Klain, Ron Klain had a brilliant piece in the Washington Post where he said the way autocrats take authority is by going after their opponents for something the opponents really did. You can always find something on somebody. And so if you look back at what has happened, he fired the acting attorney general and he had a plausible statement that the reason was she would refuse to defend his travel ban, though his own White House promptly realized they could not defend travel ban one. It had no basis and no findings behind it. And, you know, leaving open the question if they fired Sally Ace because she was the one that kept saying, you've got a national security advisor who may be a, a Russian asset. Then he fires the FBI director for a reason that went back a year about how he handled the Clinton emails which was obviously pretextual. And then he fired the, direct, the deputy director of the FBI, finding something that he had done, or he may or may not have done, um, uh, whether he had been candid. But you wait to find something for each of these. So here's someone who's fired an attorney general, an FBI director, um, a deputy FBI director, um, right in front of, in, in plain view, in plain sight. Um, and somehow a third or more of the country resists any suggestion that 
that something is going wrong here. Um, okay, well, after Bob Bauer's interview, um, I got a lot of mail from people who'd begun drinking. Uh, I think probably you're going to drive them to, like, straight heroin um, with this. So so tell me what what is the cure here, Walter? I, I, I agree. I think that we are in a slow-moving constitutional meltdown and that f- there's something about the, the slow-movingness that allows us to normalize it or become numb to it. So what's the, what's the fix? Well, remember when, when the dramatic moment, the day after Archibald Cox was fired, was fired on a Saturday night in the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, he appeared at Monday and spoke to the country in a press conference. And he said, whether, roughly this, whether we continue to have a democratic republic depends now depends upon the Congress and ultimately the American people. And Congress stepped up and made it clear that they were prepared to remove the president from office unless he reversed course and named an even more independent counsel, Leon Jaworski, to continue the investigation and brought him down. But in the end, that's what we have to rely upon. We have to rely upon the grand inquest of the nation, which is the House of Representatives and an impeachment process if it comes to that, or committee, serious committee hearings if it doesn't. And it's up ultimately to the people to make sure that those who are in political power don't allow a president to erode the constitutional system. And and what's your response when you look at the Coons-Tillis bill, the Graham-Booker bill? You know, we have bills in the Senate, bipartisan bills that would protect Mueller, and Senate Republicans largely saying, yeah, we don't need to do that. He's not going to do anything crazy. Uh, does that suggest to you that that, that stepping up that you are hopeful about is not going to happen? I think we don't know yet. I think we don't know yet. There were very few members of his party who were taking on Richard Nixon until very late in the process. Very late in the process. Now, when the joint committee hearings were held, members of his party like Senator Howard Baker, um, Senator Lowell Weinker of Connecticut, were as aggressive in trying to find out whether Nixon was involved in an obstruction of justice as any, and perhaps more than, um, the Democrats on the joint Watergate committee. But um, so far, you know, initially the failure to have a bipartisan special committee with full authority to seriously find out what happened in this past election, that was a misstep at the very beginning, which has sort of put us in the, in the, in the, in the area of, of some constitutional rot. And, you know, the background for that is also a different kind of crisis, a crisis of, of, of democratic legitimacy. That is, even where we have agreed upon rules, look what, where those rules are leaving us. We have a, a, a Senate where it, when the country is evenly divided, as it was in 2000, the Republican candidate carries states that have 60 Senate seats. And the Democratic candidate carries states that have 40 Senate seats. And in not too long, a decade or two, 
we're going to have a situation where 30% of the country elects 70 senators and 70% of the country elects 30 senators. We have a House of Representatives where the Democrats need something as much as a 10% landslide in order to gain control. And we could have, if we have two more vacancies under this Trump-Pence administration, we could have a situation where a majority of the Supreme Court, five justices, were chosen by presidents who got fewer votes than their opponent and the national, uh, national votes in the presidential election. Uh, and a Supreme Court that is prepared to strike down progressive legislation and regulations. And I think that begins to create a serious legitimacy, democratic legitimacy crisis. This is the long pause of despair that... that <laughs> well, look, what, what, one good thing has happened. Let's, let's think about a positive note. Please. One very good thing has happened since and indeed because of the events of November 2016, and that is a level of civic engagement which we have not seen in half a century. And that is um, very inspiring. I think people don't think the courts are going to save us. They're going to get out and save ourselves. Whether we can sustain that momentum remains to be seen, but it certainly is an encouraging sign that people are activated all over the country. You see it in the grocery stores. I see it when I go to the grocery store. You hear it from people. This is quite different than anything we've experienced since I was young at the time of the civil rights movement and the anti-war protests. Walter, what what should Donald Trump's lawyers be most worried about? It seems like they're awfully worried out of all proportion uh, about Stormy Daniels. It seems that they're maybe not worried enough about the Mueller probe. Uh, I think actually the summer Zervos uh, case is a dark horse that might prove quite dangerous for him. Uh what 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 are you thinking about when you think what could actually pierce this weird world of stasis that we're in where nothing matters and nothing counts? Well, I think that for all of the pyrotechnics at the moment um around the Stormy Daniels and the and the other cases and the emoluments clause, I really think that the the Mueller investigation is is uh is more serious. When you look at the obvious, the obvious evidence of attempts to undercut this investigation, there would be serious criminal matters and uh, a defense of that that I think uh, is almost laughable. The idea that because the president has the power to pardon or has the power to fire people means that he could do it for any reason. It makes no sense. We've established this. Governors pardon people who bribe them and they, and, and they're held criminally accountable for doing it. Even though they had an unlimited pardoning power, that doesn't mean they could do it for a corrupt reason. So I think we have information out there and, and I, and I think we don't know whether we see more than the tip of the iceberg about what we have about the attempts to interfere with this investigation and about, um, you know, we would be, um, we don't actually know whether the president was personally involved in working with the Russians or what his state of knowledge was. All that remains to be seen, but both that and the obstruction and, and whatever financial issues involving financing by Russian interest, uh, 
I think that's all could be fairly serious. We'll have to see. We don't we have to realize we don't know what we don't know. Walter Dellinger is head of the appellate practice at O'Malvaney and Myers in D.C. He served uh, as assistant attorney general, head of the Office of Legal Counsel, and then as acting solicitor general under President Bill Clinton. And he is a dear friend of this show. And Walter, I thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Dolly. I enjoyed it. And that wraps it up for this episode of Amicus. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you would like to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. Thank you. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. We'll be back with you in two weeks for another episode of Amicus. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.